Good morning, friends. Thankful that we can be together here on the Lord's Day and uh, worship and praise our God and also be ministered to by God in so many ways, including now through His Word. Those two stories have always been uh, the story of Joseph and the story of Job, uh, something that has shaken me personally and then also encouraged me as I face different things in my life. And I'm certain that, that those two stories have also impacted you from time to time, um, knowing the difficulty they went through and then examining your own experience. As we continue now in our study of Romans chapter 8, you'll need your Bible open to that chapter. And we're going to be looking at particularly verse 28. But Romans 8 really is an amazing portion of Scripture. I've heard from a few of you who've uh, taken me up on my challenge to read Romans 8 daily uh, of how encouraged you've been, uh, how, how much Romans 8 has come alive to you, when you fill your mind, and this, this is what happens, when you fill your mind with the Word of God, the Spirit of God takes that kindling that's found in the Word of God and really builds a fire of faith that keeps your heart warm throughout your entire life, which is why we keep encouraging you and exhorting you to be in the Word. The sequence of the doctrines in this great letter of Romans, and especially here in chapter 8, make a lot of sense. If you just think through the sequence of our salvation and, and the issues that we face as Christians, this book, this chapter, makes a lot of sense. When you think about the questions that would arise in your mind if you were speaking to the Apostle Paul about your faith and about your experiences, it seems that he anticipates those questions here in this book, here in this chapter, and answers them thoroughly. Today we're going to camp on this just one verse, verse 28, and I know you're thinking, how do you expect to get through a whole eight chapters in eight weeks, or the eighth chapter in eight weeks if you spend one entire sermon on one verse? Well, this is the exception this week, um, and after hearing the contents of verse 28, you may be happy that we've lingered for some extended thinking on this. Look at verse 28. It's familiar to most of us. But look at this verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That, that verse rolls off our tongue all the time, doesn't it? It's just kind of like in the back of our mind throughout the Christian life. Well, I want to unpack this verse for you today. I want, I want to show you the, the profound importance of this verse. What we have here in front of us has been the source of comfort and peace to many throughout human history as they've struggled through the sufferings of life. So when you think about what's being said here that I just read for you, it's mind-boggling as you begin to unpack what the Apostle Paul is saying. But as intellectually stimulating as this verse can be, my goal today is to encourage your trust in God and your worship of Him. That's my intent. Your mind will be tickled, but my goal is that your heart will be impacted. 
So as we think about the sequence here of teaching um, in Romans 8, this verse falls nicely into place. You remember verses 1 through 27, Paul was speaking about how the Holy Spirit of God works in and through the Christian. How without the Holy Spirit's presence, our Christian life would not be working. And then he, he kind of narrows his focus and, and in verses 17 through 27, he begins to give direction to the believers for dealing with suffering because he knows that's what we're all going to be facing. He not only wants you to be, to be assured of your salvation, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He also wants you to be prepared as you walk with the Holy Spirit through life to deal with the mounting trials and difficulties that seem to come. In verse 28, Paul uses what some would say is poor grammar because he begins a sentence here with a conjunction, and, but he does this for a very important reason. The word and communicates that this verse is a continuation of what Paul has already been saying and expounding on in verses 17 through 27 on the subject of suffering and connects this verse to those verses. And think of, think of all the things he said about suffering that we've covered here in the last sermon or two. Verse 17 speaks of suffering as a mark of knowing Christ. Verse 18, Paul opens a sustained commentary on dealing with suffering as a Christian. In verse 23, he speaks of the groaning of the suffering saint. In verse 25, he speaks of bearing up under the pressure of suffering. In verse 26, he addresses our human weakness, which usually presents itself in the form of suffering. He's talking about suffering. And verse 28 isn't separate from that conversation. That's why he says, and, at the beginning of verse 28. So, are you suffering? No doubt, in a, in a group this size, Many of you are currently going through difficult things that you would call suffering and that we would call suffering if we knew what they were. In fact, Paul's argument will be, not to be a spoiler here, but all of us are suffering at some level or another all the time. But are you suffering? Are you facing some difficult times in your marriage or your job or your family or your health maybe? Maybe your finances. Are you suffering? Well, then you might want to pay special attention this morning. Paul's going to give the best possible perspective on suffering that has helped millions to survive and even flourish in the midst of suffering, which is what we want. We don't want suffering to undo us. We don't want to walk away from Christ because we have some hardship. No, we want to benefit as God intends. So when we get here to verse 28, because of the word and, we see that there is actually hope and peace when facing life's storms. We can actually get through it. And not just get through it still breathing, but get through it victoriously and beneficially. So verse 28 is an important explanation about why 
God allows suffering in the lives of his people. You want to get through suffering? Keep an eye on God's purpose in it. Paul wants us to be prepared for and benefit from the inevitable hard times that we will face. Verse 28 goes a long way in accomplishing that. The truth that we will see in verse 28 today is a very important truth for every Christian to know, which is why Paul says, we know, <laughs> the second two words in this verse, and we know. We, we can't afford to be ignorant, to not know, to be unsure of the matter in this verse. This is why he wrote, we know. We must know the truth of verse 28. If there's a truth that we need to know going forward in the Christian life, expecting hardship, it's this one. We must know that God is sovereign and in control of our circumstances. We cannot be in doubt about that if we expect to navigate these things. Otherwise, trials and sufferings that we face are, would be unbearable and, and really ruin us. But Paul didn't write things like, we feel, did he? He said, we know. He didn't say, you know, suffering will make you feel good. He didn't say death would make you feel good, divorce would make you feel good, that loss would make you feel good. Those things don't make you feel good, which is why he didn't use that word. He used, we know. He also didn't say, we see. That's an important observation. He didn't say we see that all things work together for good because sometimes we don't see that thing. Even after years of suffering, we don't know why that happened and can't explain it even to our closest friends. See, we cannot limit our Christianity by what we see with our eyes. Our experience isn't the foundation of our faith. If anything, our experience can send us down the wrong road, can't it? Yeah, we must know, and this verse helps us know. One way to understand this verse thoroughly is to think of it as a theater production. All right, I'm going to get your mind set with me. Think of this verse as a theater production. Producing theater requires actors, a script or a story, and a director. Right? There's probably a lot more, but I'm not all into that much in theater, so I could come up with three things that might be important um, for a successful theater production. All right? You've got to have actors. You've got to have a script. You've got to have a story. And you need a director. All right? So let's look at the actors first. Who are the actors in this story? Who are the actors in this verse? Uh, who's Paul talking about here? In other words, is this truth in verse 28 for everybody? Or are there specific actors in view here? Well, <laughs> it's important to know who's in view here. This story, this script is written for and about certain actors, certain people. Let's see who they are. Right up front, what do we discover? For those who love God, it says for those who love God. Paul puts this phrase just to make it uh, stand out to us. Oh, well, actually it doesn't stand out to us because in English uh, it's not like in Greek. In the Greek language, 
when authors wanted to underline or highlight a concept or a word, they would move it to the front of the sentence, all right? So they didn't have highlighter pens, and when they underlined, it messed up the manuscript, so they just moved the word to the beginning of the sentence, and these were the words that are at the beginning of the original language sentence. Those who love God. That's who this story is about. That's who's in view in this verse. That's who these truths apply to. Those who love God. Not anybody and everybody. Not at all. God is guaranteeing a good outcome for those who love God. Now, who are those who love God? Who are those people? No one we know from the study of just this book, no one loves God in and of themselves, do they? No one naturally tends to a love of the Almighty? No. The Bible teaches us that those who love God are those whom God has loved. You might say, well, God loves everybody. John, don't you know John 3.16? You know, God loves the world. That's true, but a certain special saving love he has for his own, a love that actually is beyond the creative element to the saving element. That's the people in view. God has loved this group of people so much so that he's changed their hearts so that they will love him in return. Remember what uh, the Apostle John said in 1 John? We love because he first loved us. That's how this works. Unless God elects, calls, regenerates, and adopts and converts, no one loves God. Paul made that abundantly clear back in Romans 3. A love for God comes by an act of grace from God. And so, follow me here. We, we love God by imputation and experience. Now, I need to help you understand what I mean by imputation. When you come to Christ, when the Holy Spirit regenerates you, part of the regeneration process includes giving you a new heart, and that heart, that, that divine work of grace, creates a love for God, a love for his word, a love for his people that didn't exist before. That's why I say a love for God is imputed or by imputation. It's also by experience, though, isn't it? As we live this life of faith, we learn more and more about who Jesus is, what God has done through Christ for us, and it does what? It creates an increasing love for our Savior, an increasing love for God more and more, day by day, as we see his faithfulness over and over again. This love for God is by imputation and experience. Paul describes even those who are in Christ, those who have saving faith, by this very mark, a love for God. Look how he does this in 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Speaking of the saved ones. Ephesians 6.24. Grace be with all of our... Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. He's talking about saved people. See, loving God is a defining mark of a regenerated heart. 
Those who love God are the ones who all things work out for. That's the actors in this story. Even in John 10, Jesus himself said, I'm the good shepherd, I know my own, my own know me. This is what's happening here, these are who are in view. Your love for God doesn't need to be a perfect love though, so don't get discouraged if you're not feeling that your love for God is as deep or profound as it ought to be. I don't love God like A.W. Tozer, I must be worthless. That's not what's in view here. No, Christian love doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be love. So the question, do you love God? Do you love God? I don't, I don't mean your own creation of a comfortable God. I mean the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, the revealed God. Do you love this God? If so, it's because he has loved you. If so, this verse describes you. The truths here are for you. Who else, how else, or I should say, how else does Paul describe the actors here in this story? Look at the end of the verse. Those who are called according to his purpose. It's not only those who love God, but those who are called according to his purpose. This also refers to the actors. First, he referred to them from a human perspective, those who love God. And then second, he refers to the same group of people from a divine perspective, those who are called by God according to his purpose. This, this call of God is the sovereign, effectual, eternal, irresistible call that never fails and is always answered call. It's a call so powerful that it overcomes every human resistance, which is why we believe and teach irresistible grace. This is a divine subpoena, this call. In fact, the word called, those called according to his purpose, actually comes from the Greek word that was used as a court summons. And what happens when you get a court summons? You show up. <laughs> What happened when Lazarus received a divine summons? He came forth, right? That's this kind of call. Those who are called by God according to his purpose. The actors of this story are those who love God and are called by God. It's for those who respond to his love and his divine summons. Now let's look at the story. This story <laughs> is an amazing story. It begins with all things, all things. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This includes, let me say it as clearly as I can, everything. All right? <laughs> I heard a preacher once say in the Greek, that means everything. All things. Remember, remember the context here. What's he talking about in verses 17 through 27? Suffering. Those things included in all things. What's he talking about from 31 to 39? Wonderful good things. So the bad and the good, the difficult and the joyful, all things work together for good. 
the good, the bad, the ugly. There's nothing that you experience, whether good, bad, comfortable, uncomfortable, joy or sorrow, that isn't included. The story includes everything in life, the millions of details daily, all the possibilities that you encounter daily are included in all things. It means all things. Now, let's look at the next part of the story. First, all things, and it says what happens with all these things? They work together. This is actually one word in the original language, synergeo, synergeo. Let's see if you can pick out what this means, synergism. That's what the word is. God is synergistically bringing all things in life that we experience, brings them all together for our good. (laughs) This is amazing, isn't it? Talk about intellectual stimulation. Think about what that would require to bring about everything, the red light, the conversation, the look, all of it, God sovereignly controls for your good. (laughs) This means that God is actively involved in every detail of your life. Let's let's parse this verb, this, this verb work together. It's in the present tense, which means God is right now, currently, actively working things out, which is the second part of the verb. It's, it's active. It's an active voice. So God is working all things together right now, actively, in your life. He's not just up there picking up the pieces after we've blown our lives up. No, God is working right now, at this moment, to cause good right where you sit. Why did you sit where you sit? This morning, why'd you park where you parked in the parking lot? This verse tells us. So, he is working right now by using the wounded relationships in your life. He's working right now by using that raise that you got or the disappointment from the raise you didn't get. He's he's working that right now. He's using right now the conversation you had in the lobby before you came in. He's using right now where you parked because where you parked, you're going to run into somebody or an experience or a time delay. Sometimes having to park further away actually benefits you. Right? You have to walk a little bit. Maybe God wants your heart to beat three more times before you collapse. Right? (laughs) so that someone can say something else that you'll be a little bit more like Jesus before you see him. Right? He never sleeps. God never naps. Nothing distracts him from focusing on you specifically. It's not just a general observation here by Paul. He's talking about the specifics. He's not, God is not so preoccupied with the problems in Washington, D.C. that he allows your small issues to fall through the cracks. God's not so taken up with the problems in the Middle East that he forgets about you, the little guy in Yakima. No. This verb is also in the indicative mood. So it's present tense, active voice, indicative mood. This this verb working together or works together. What does that mean? 
<laughs> it means it's not conditional on your obedience or disobedience. It's not conditional on your level of spiritual maturity, on your understanding of theological truth. It's indicative. This is happening. Whether you know it, believe it or not. God is orchestrating right now, actively, the details of your life for your good. He's taking it all together and weaving it together to, to create a beautiful piece of artwork. And then the story has a good ending. You see it in verse 28? <laughs> for good. This is the story. This, the story begins with all things working together and ending with good. This is the aim of God's activity in your life. This is the theme of the theater play, the good ending. The story has a good ending. We like stories with good endings, don't we? So what's the good here? Is it becoming wealthy, staying healthy, having well-balanced good citizen children? Those are all good things. Don't get me wrong. Those are wonderful things. But the good that God is interested in working towards is far more important than those things. The good, actually, is found in verse 29, right in the very next verse. Look at verse 29 to skip ahead to next week's sermon. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. You say, well, that sounds kind of boring. Well, is there anything more good than becoming like God, the son? <laughs> you may want to think that through a little bit longer. Friends, the good is becoming like Jesus. That's the ultimate possible good. There's nothing better that than that for anyone at any time. To become like Jesus? There, there's nothing better than, than knowing that all the things that are in my life that are difficult, that I don't understand, that are making me sad, that are making me whatever, are, is ending up so that I will be like Jesus one day. God is taking everything that you experience in life and weaving it together for this specific out outcome. And just a heads up, to remind you of the context, the surest way to being conformed to the image of Christ is usually by way of suffering. Which is why Paul spent a large portion of Romans 8 expounding on it. It's, it's usually the trials, not the victories, not the, the joys, not the vacation, not the rounds of golf that bring about God's plan in your life. 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you have been called, summoned, same word, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. In verse 28, Paul is saying that God is bringing about a transformation in us by every possible means in life. Everything is bearing in on this one objective. 
God is orchestrating together all the experiences in your life, good, bad, comfortable, uncomfortable, joyful, sorrowful, sinful, disobedience, obedience, holiness, all these things to bring about Christ-likeness in you. One more thing. Paul is not saying that all things are good. He's not saying death is good. He's not saying evil is good or sin is good. He's saying that God takes all of these things from every corner of your life and uses them to accomplish his purposes in you specifically. You're probably asking, well, how can cancer be good? Do I need to explain that to you? Sun Valley Church, how many times have I said this? Cancer is good, especially terminal cancer. Why? You people who know. What happens with terminal cancer patients who know Jesus? They end up with him. We sing about how wonderful that will be. Do we believe it? What Paul is saying is that God is doing only what God can do here when he says he's working all things together for good. He is weaving every detail of your life together to bring about his will and goal for you, which is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. He's taking everything, every day, every moment, and fitting it into his divine macrame, if you will, of his sovereign plan. He's taking your victories, your defeats, your joys and sorrows, successes and failures, and weaving them together with the divine purpose of making you like Jesus, which is joyful, obedient, holy, trusting, dependent, and satisfied. I'm not, I'm not proud of what I'm about to say, but I've done needlepoint. Um, <laughs> it was required of me in junior high art class. Um, needlepoint's supposed to be beautiful, um, I'm not sure mine was in that category, but mine, the back of mine looked like every needlepoint looks, right? The front, not so much, but the back looked like every needlepoint looks, convoluted, confusing, ugly, faded, etc. That's our view of uh, the sufferings in our lives, of the difficulties, the challenges. From our perspective, there, there, there seems to be no rhyme or reason to our experiences. There seems to be no discernible trajectory with a better destination. But from God's side of this needlepoint, there seems to be beauty, symmetry, order, and purpose. When life is over and we stand in the presence of God, we will also be able to see this completed project from his side it will be on display for all to see, including the angels who will stand in awe and praise God for what he's been able to do with people like us. Maybe the watch would be a better illustration for you. You ever seen those watches that have the transparent back? You can see the inner workings of the watch. Yeah. So, some of the wheels are moving one direction. Some of the wheels are moving in another direction. Some wheels are big, some wheels are small. They're moving at different speeds. But when you put it on, it seems to work. How does that happen? I'm not a watchmaker. I don't know. But this verse tells us how it happens in the Christian life. Right? 
all these confusing things going different directions at different speeds and different angles, God's using to accomplish his purpose. To keep perfect time. This is a picture of our lives. We really can't tell if things are going backwards or forwards half the time. We certainly don't know the trajectory. But God is the great watchmaker, and his watches always, always work. This is why James said what he said at the beginning of his letter, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, having its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, slash, John Schubert would say, like Jesus, lacking in nothing. So we know the actors, we know the story. Let's look at the director here in verse 28. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that the puzzle pieces of life of their own intrinsic nature will find their way together or work their way together by chance to bring about good. That's not what is happening. I've dumped out many boxes of puzzles and they never come out complete, <laughs> ever. The all things here that Paul's referring to are the multi-sided puzzle pieces of life. That God actually designs those pieces and uses them to make a miracle happen. Things can't work themselves together for good unless God is behind those puzzle pieces, moving them into the perfect place to bring about our joy and his glory. The point is that God is the sovereign director of the human theater. He is the divine puzzle master. Paul ended this verse with a statement, for those who are called according to his purpose. You see that? Those who are called according to his purpose. What is God's purpose? What could he possibly be up to? Well, it's the same thing back in verse 27 that the Holy Spirit was praying about. He says he was praying for God's will. The Holy Spirit was praying to the Father for God's will. This is what he's talking about, the purpose of God. The Holy Spirit's praying that God will accomplish his purpose in us. What is that purpose? This purpose refers to God's eternal purpose, which is to demonstrate his love for his son and magnify the glory and worth of his son, Jesus Christ. That's his purpose. So now, we, all we've got to find out is, how do we make that happen? What's our part in that? <laughs> Here it is. The eternal plan of God includes saving and transforming an undeserving group of people from sinful rebels into obedient and loving family members. His purpose includes the promise to the Son in eternity past that that he will give a group of people to the Son as a love gift that will become like him and praise and worship him throughout eternity. That's his purpose. God is the one who orchestrates all things. Notice the context here. God, 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 God. Everywhere. Just in the immediate context. Now, Look at Romans eleven thirty six. 36. On the overhead or in your Bible. 
For from him, from who? Him, God, capital H. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Is there anything else? Did Paul miss something? Is there another aspect here of existence? No. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God is the director, the sovereign director, controller, sustainer, developer, puzzle master, watchmaker of all things. Here are three statements that might help you understand this. God, calls, God causes some things. He allows other things. He controls everything. You hear it? He causes some things. He allows other things. He controls everything. In order for God to be able to take all the detailed things of your life and weave them together in such a way that brings about our Christ-like transformation requires infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, infinite power. The story of Joseph is an amazing story, which is why I had it read, a pertinent part of the story. It really is an amazing piece of divine artwork that, that illustrates this point of Romans 8.28. It illustrates the work of a genius puzzle maker. I'm going to reread for you Genesis 50, 20, and then talk about it just for a second. As for you, you meant evil against me, Joseph said to his brothers, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Think about Joseph's story. When he was a young teenager, sold into slavery by his brothers who were supposed to protect him. Living the next 30 years of his life away from family, in prisons, as a slave, in horrible conditions. And he says this, after he's risen to a place of prominence, after he has the ability to totally annihilate his brothers who did this horrible thing to him, and he says this, <laughs> what do we learn from the story of Joseph? What do we learn from scripture? What are we learning in Romans 8:28? The following, God is all loving. God is all loving. God used the evil intent of Joseph's brothers to save the brothers. They would have died unless God didn't initiate this this anger, hostility, and jealousy towards their younger favored brother. Their sinful act saved them. <laughs> now don't you go sinning. <laughs> God is all loving. Secondly, he's all wise. Could you have thought that up? No. Could we have? I mean, we got, we got 250 people at Sun Valley Church. Certainly, we could have thought it up. Nope. God knew, because of his wisdom, that he needed his man in power in Egypt at that time in history to keep the people in Israel from starving. Had the people in Israel starved to death, there would be no Savior, and we would be left in our sin. He, he kept the people of Israel alive because 2,000 years later, 
a Savior would be born from the tribe of Judah. And Judah, by the way, plays a prominent role in the story of Joseph. If you're interested, you may want to go read it. It's pretty fascinating. Next, God is all-knowing. <laughs> He'd have to be, wouldn't he? He would have to be. God had planned a worldwide famine to show up just at the moment that Joseph was ready to ascend from prison to the second most powerful position in Egypt. A worldwide famine was coming. And so God pulled Joseph out of prison at just the right moment to manage the crisis. And guess what? God knows exactly what it will take to conform each of us through our circumstances into the image of Jesus. Finally, he's all-powerful. Again, he'd have to be. <laughs> it says in the book of Psalms that God directs rivers as he directs kings in their hearts and their minds and decisions. God was the only one who could actually pull this story off in the life of Joseph and in the life of you. It's required that he be omnipotent, all-powerful, to accomplish his purposes in you. So, to leave you with something, do you love God? Does this verse speak of you? Do you love God? Have you embraced Jesus Christ, his son, to be the propitiation, the covering, the satisfaction of your sin? Do you love God? Or do you love yourself? And that's your life. So the, that's the first and most important question I want to ask you. The second, the second is this. Do you trust God? I love him, but man, I don't. And I don't just mean intellectually trust him. Of course, you would say, yeah, he's all those things you mentioned, Pastor John, but I'm not sure he can pull that off in my life. Do you trust him? You know, we, we've had great opportunity to practice trust in the past year, haven't we? The world's in chaos. Have you trusted him through it? Do you trust God's in control of your life? How about your kids' lives? Do you trust him with those wonderful people? Or do you think you have to manipulate and plan and scurry around to make sure their lives are what you want them to be? Or do you trust God? Do you possess a theology of trust? Things in scripture that don't make sense, do you just say God is good and I'm gonna trust that? Do you believe that he loves you, knows everything about you and will do what is best for you or not? Thirdly, can you see the invisible hand of God in your life? Have you ever stepped back and just looked with as much divine help as you can muster 
That's an oxymoron in case you don't know. Uh, and look at God's side of the picture. Have you ever tried to do that and just see the hand of God in your life from that day until this day? Fourth, do you praise God for what he's doing in your life? Or are you still struggling with bitterness and discontent and unbelief? The first minute you have a twinge of pain, you, you run to worry or you get resentful. Or do you, do you praise God for what he's doing in your life, including the hardships? Knowing what you know now about suffering, are you able to be thankful to God and praise him for your life and all of its challenges? And all the good? You know that all the good in your life, at home, at work, at play, is a result of God working out the details to make Christ shine in and through you? Do you praise him for this? You see, God loves us the way we are, which is why he saved us, why we're yet sinners. But he loves us so much he's not going to leave us the way we are. Aren't you thankful? I would hate to get to heaven and realize I'm just like I was. It's like, did I miss the boat? I mean, no. Friends, God loves me as I was when he brought me to Christ, a rebellious sinner. But he loves me so much he's not going to leave me that way. Pray with me. What a tremendous passage of scripture you've given us today, Father. By inspiring the Apostle Paul to write these words so that we would understand how you work sovereignly in and through our circumstances to bring about your will for us. What a blessing. God, I pray that we would leave this room confident in you, confident in your work, rejoicing and anticipating all the things that we will encounter even today and see God's finger moving that puzzle piece into place. God, we thank you for this. We praise you for this. Be glorified in us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.